Good morning. Today's reading is from Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Hear the word of the Lord. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. If I have not met you, my name is Gabe Coyle. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community's downtown campus. And I want to begin our time together today by reading and sharing the testimony of an ordinary man who went through an atrocious moment in history. Hear his words. The living conditions were impossible. Every, every cellar, every corridor was full, filled with people. And many couldn't even find this, and they slept in the street. The result was that every morning the undertakers had to collect bodies from the streets. In July 1942, the German authorities announced that to ease up your loss, you can volunteer to go to the east, and there you will be provided with work and food and clothing and so forth. So every day, about 6,000 volunteers were sent off, not to be seen or heard of again. Then when these volunteers started to become thin on the ground, the Germans arranged traps in the street, and whoever was caught in the trap was sent off. And among those were old people, disabled people, blind people, or children. And they were packed to capacity in those cattle trains and sent off. Now one or two of those who were sent off came back and said, This is all a lie. They are being sent only a few tens of kilometers away from Warsaw to a place called Treblinka. And there they are being exterminated completely. This is a story of Daniel Faulkner, a Holocaust survivor, as he's recounting those days, those weeks, those years of utter oppression and pain. And then he finishes out his audio recording by saying this. You see, the human nature is such that this is a thing that is incomprehensible. No one, no one can take it in that someone is planning a complete annihilation or murder of a whole people. This is inconceivable. Human beings should never, ever, ever be treated like that. He's right, it's inconceivable. And no matter who you are, your cultural background, your economic position and status, or your educational prowess, everybody can agree that the denial of human dignity in moments like these is atrocious, absolutely atrocious. But why? Why? Have you ever thought about that? Like, why is that atrocious? Most most people in the United States would believe and do believe that human beings deserve dignity. We believe this down down to our core. And, And the strangest thing is, 
This idea that human beings deserve dignity, it didn't originate with you. It didn't originate with me. It wasn't something that was discovered in MLK's, you know, his uh, dissertation. It wasn't unearthed in the imagination of Gandhi. It wasn't invented in the United States Bill of Rights. And it wasn't even dreamed up by an Eastern mystic. The reality is that human dignity is not our idea. Suffering, oppression, and extortion are our idea. And the list of human ingenuity, whether it be concentration camps, gulags, the lynchings of minorities throughout the United States, the decimation of indigenous people groups in the United States, or this whole framework of thinking, this world over that seeks to eradicate vulnerable children in the womb because they are seen as inconvenient. The list goes on and on of how human beings in every generation, every generation, has become ingenious at figuring out ways to dehumanize, distort, and destroy human beings. And human dignity, this thing we long for, this thing we treasure, the thing that when it's absent, our stomachs turn, human dignity is not our idea. So whose idea is it? It's not, I will say this, it's not novel, it's not modern, it's not European, it didn't find its origination in ancient Rome. We have to actually go a lot further back, back to a time when oppression was supposedly endorsed by the gods when infanticide was justified as a way of upholding the empire, when ethnic superiority led to the oppression of a whole other ethnic group, we have to go back to ancient Egypt with Moses and the Exodus, where thousands of years ago, the creator God saw Israel under extreme oppression in Egypt. And he called a man named Moses to lead them out of 400 years of slavery. He revealed himself as Yahweh, a God, the God who is over and above, more powerful, more beautiful, more glorious than any of the gods or goddesses that had been birthed in the imagination of the Egyptians. But God wasn't just, he wasn't just interested in reinvigorating an imagination for who he is. In reality, he was also interested in helping you and I have an appropriate understanding of who we are. And for that, we have to go all the way back to the beginning. If you're new, we're walking through the book of Genesis, a book that reveals the beginning of everything that has a beginning. And right here at the beginning, we find who God created us to be. And it's going to be beautiful, and it's going to be absolutely challenging. But when we go back to the very beginning, we're going to find an invitation to be the best version. Some would even say, and I would even say, the original versions of ourselves. So let's take a look together. If you haven't already, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. So who are we? Who are we? Verse 26. Then God said... Let us make man, or humankind, in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
And then right here, okay, before we move on to verse 27, what you need to notice if you're looking in your Bibles is that there's a movement from an overarching poetic feel to a highly poetic style. And our interpretations here, our English interpretation of the Hebrew text, the interpreters seek to signal that by looking at your text, they indent it to give it a poetic kind of structure in the midst of this broader literary unit. There's this shift, and you see this here by, and the reason the interpreters feel this way is there's this strange threefold repetition in close proximity of the word bara, create in Hebrew. And there's this rhythm and this, this cadence that goes on in these three phrases in verse 27. There's a shift from 26 to 27, where in chapter, or in verse 26, God is speaking. And then it's as if in verse 27, it shifts to Moses, led by the Spirit, having this meditation, this moment of amazement at the mystery and the beauty of God creating human beings over against every other creature that he's created. So as I read this verse, feel the cadence, feel the rhythm, feel the rhyme. Sorry, that's not anywhere. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is God's glorious design and idea for humanity. And in everything else that he's created up to this point, he said, it's good. It's good. It's good. We heard that last week as the sum total of chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 3 was read. You hear this echo. It is good. It is good. It is good. And then you get to verse 31 after the summary of God has created human beings. And what does he say? It is very good. Right here, we have the foundation for the human dignity our hearts long for and a sure footing to treat each other with dignity. When God reveals to Moses who you and I are, we, we now see here most brilliantly that human dignity is God's gift to every human being. Human dignity is God's gift to every human being. It comes screaming off the pages of the creation of these two initial human beings through whom every human being that exists has come into existence. Simple enough. Human beings, our human dignity is God's gift to every human being. Simple enough. And yet I think it's absolutely revolutionary. It was revolutionary in its day when Moses wrote it down at first, and it's still revolutionary today. There is no other framework No other ideology, no other god or goddess in the ancient Near East that elevated human beings with such unbelievable dignity. Throughout the ancient Near East, there were stories of how the gods had created human beings, and they made them sure for slaves. They made them sure for playthings, and maybe even just by happenstance. But only here, the world over, do we find that a god, the god, creates human beings intentionally, purposefully, with inherent dignity and worth that causes every human being to treat every human being with unbelievable dignity and worth. Human dignity is God's idea. 
He designed us, he created us to be the capstone, the very chief, the very most beautiful thing he has created this world over. And even though human dignity is God's idea, we like to act like it's ours. And it comes in a subtle shift in the statement, in a statement like this. Human dignity is a gift to every human being. It's so close. Do you see it? It's, just, it's super subtle. Instead of something divinely given by someone bigger than us, it becomes something natural. Well, of course human beings have dignity. It's not something supernatural. And so the claim goes that we don't need a framework for any sort of God to have a framework for human dignity this world over. How often in your life and mine do we want to cherry pick God's ideas but distance ourselves from the God who has those ideas? What's the outcome? Well, let's take a look. Without God, there is actually no foundation for human dignity. There is no foundation for human dignity. Here's, here's what we need to understand. Dignity, by its very definition, is the state of being worthy of respect or honor. We often recognize this uh, when we, we talk about people of certain status or rank. We call them dignitaries, right? Because of the level of honor and respect that they are due. And then in the midst of that, this makes a lot of sense of what we're beginning to see in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1.1, we see in the beginning, God created. And then you get down to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, the passage that was just read for us, that I reread for us. And we read, then God said, let us make humankind. Now, if you're reading that and you're thinking chapter 1, verse 1, and you get to chapter 1, verse 26, the question that comes to the top of your mind is, who is this us? Where did this us come from? Well, let me paint a picture of what's going on here. We're seeing the picture of the creator king speaking with great obeisance or this royal we as if he's speaking for all of the kingdom and the host of heaven. He stands up in front of heaven and he's looking down at creation and he says, look at all that we've made. Look at all that I've made. Look at all of this. And now we're going to make, I'm going to make something. Watch host of heaven. We're going to make something that's utterly different than anything else that I have made. And he speaks with royal exclamation saying, here, I'm going to create humankind that's different from everything else. They'll be like us. Nothing else in creation anywhere else is described like this, such that it takes on its whole poetic nature. Now, let us make humankind like us. And you can just picture God before all the host of heaven creating humankind and putting a divine imprint, the dignitary, the highest dignitary over all of his world, giving us dignity by imprinting us with his dignity right at the beginning. Dignified indeed, yeah? How often do you think of yourself as someone created intentionally with inherent dignity? with unbelievable worth, as someone worthy of respect and honor because of who you've been made after. 
No matter who you are, no matter your age, no matter your capacity, no matter your gender, no matter your orientation, no matter your status or the color of your skin, no matter who you are, you have been created by God intentionally with unbelievable inherent worth and dignity because he has bestowed it upon you regardless of what you have to offer in terms of comparison to another human being. We're not beasts. We've been made unlike the beasts in so many regards. In the words of, of the author of Ecclesiastes, another biblical book, he says we're basically still dust balls, but... <laughs> We've been now hidden, eternity, eternity has been hidden in the recesses of our hearts or in the words of C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest thinkers of the 20th century, in one of his most well-known essays, The Weight of Glory, he says, there are no ordinary people. You have never met a mere mortal. There's nothing like humanity this world over. And listen, humans have dignity only because in the beginning God shared his dignity with us. Without in the beginning God, there is no foundation for dignity, only a survival of the fittest, of animals scraping by to survive. I mean, imagine a world where God's idea for humanity did not come into fruition. Imagine a world where this idea of how God has created us is completely forgotten. What would happen? Imagine a world where you're completely defined exclusively by your desires. Your identity framework is exclusively defined by how you're different from other people. How your identity and the ways in which you define whether you're of worth or not is how you accomplish in the world. How you define other people is exclusively on how you feel about other people. And the highest community ethic you can strive for is, hey, if you don't hurt me, I won't hurt you. Harm principle, which is extraordinarily prevalent today. Is that the kind of world you want to live in? Or that's the, the highest hope we can have is if I don't hurt you, you don't hurt me, and I can be defined exclusively by how I feel? What if I don't like how the way I feel? Does that feel entrapping, enslaving? Yes, it does. But that's where our world is headed if God is excluded from the framework of human dignity. But it won't go there first. If God is excluded from his idea of human dignity, the very next step, step is a vague legalism. Or at best, you can hope that human dignity is a charge to every human being. Do you see this? It's not a gift given from an almighty giver. It's a rule placed without any sort of reason. No foundation. But yet, it's still a universal charge to all of society. Hey, human dignity is what you're supposed to give to every person. To which those who are wrestling in conscience will say, says who? You see, if you exclude God from the framework of dignity, you not only use, lose dignity, you also lose any sort of framework for accountability. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, something truly astounding is happening. We see, then God said, let us make man or humankind in our image 
after our likeness. And then jump down to verse 27, that middle phrase, in the image of God, he created him. Speaking of humankind again. Now, this word likeness is, is expounding all the more on the primary word, which is image. In Hebrew, that's the word selim, okay? And this is so huge what's happening here, okay? In the ancient Near East, this word selim means image, or oftentimes in translated statue. The gods and the goddesses, their spirits were said or believed to reside in the statues or the selim of the god. And wherever this selim or this, this statue was, it's as if it was a representation of that God. And whatever you did in front of that selim, whatever you did in front of that statue, that God saw, and it's as if you were doing it before that God when you did it before that selim, that image, that statue. And when you look across the pages of the Pentateuch, which means the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, attributed to Moses, when Moses uses this word selim, he often uses it for an icon or an idol. And where else does this show up? Interestingly enough, the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, we read, You shall not make for yourself a carved image. This is really astounding. I don't know about you. I'm a Bible nerd, but, so I really love this type of stuff. But hang with me, okay? Hang with me. This is so important. What God is saying is, hey, hey, you don't have the capacity. I don't want you to go and make some image of something you've seen out there and attribute divine value to it or divine qualities to it. But what God did when he made you and I, when he made human beings, is he made us in his image, as images, as people who reflect him, who now represent him, who come with unbelievable dignity and worth. Now, what this means is that when you see the person sitting next to you, when you see the coworker that works alongside of you, when you see the person you live next to, you don't merely see a human being. You see an image of someone who is bigger than you, who is over all that you see. So when you treat that image of God a certain way, it's as if you're treating God that way. And if you abuse or you use that image bearer in such a way that you dishonor who God is and you dishonor that person, that's as if you are completely bringing an affront against the creator of the universe. So beware. Do you see the accountability structured in the very design of who we are as human beings? When you look around at your neighbors, do you see them pointing to someone bigger? That's the way God's designed them. How does that change the way you view your boss? How does that impact the way you engage that difficult coworker or embittered friend? Without God, there is no framework or foundation for human dignity, nor is there any sort of ballast for accountability. There's only rules. And <laughs> rules without a reason will not last. I mean, how many of you know this? Like when you are given just this blanket rule and you're like, well, why is that a rule? Do you feel like really good about following it? No. 
Right now, our cultural position is to say, yeah, you should follow that rule so there's enough peer pressure, okay? But one thing I've learned about myself and I've continually learned afresh with my kids is that a rule without a reason will never be followed. We're really good at finding loopholes. We're really good at playing language games. But you didn't really mean that, you know, it's like, no, I did mean that. Don't do that. Well, why? Just obey me right now. Like, I don't have time to explain it. Um, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. A rule without a reason will not sustain ever. And one of the greatest language games that we have played in our world throughout history, one of the greatest loopholes we consistently try to find is by limiting the scope of who we consider a human being. Such that when we exclude God from the picture, we not only lose a foundation for dignity, we lose any sort of framework for accountability, but we begin to limit the scope of who we consider human such that we start saying things like, well, human dignity is a charge to the people I think are important. Or the people who look like me. Or the people who benefit me. Or the people who agree with me. Or the people, fill in the blank. But at the end of the day, those with power eventually use and abuse the vulnerable for their own benefit. And this is where Nietzsche starts to make a whole lot of philosophical sense as one of the most con coherent atheist philosophical minds of our time. And the 20, or he was in the 19th century into the 20th, but you know, he's not in our time. He's not still walking around. Nietzsche. Um, <laughs> But what he said is like basically human dignity becomes a plaything for our will to power where our desires become ultimate and morality is just a tool to get what we want. You take God out of the picture, everything is game. And two examples on how injustice has been perpetrated because we've limited the scope of who indeed is human. In our world today, is in our brutality of the unborn and our bigotry of minorities. Did you know that over 50 million babies have been aborted since the judicial malpractice of Roe v. Wade in 1973? The decision in Roe v. Wade was made based upon a faulty threefold foundation, a faulty legal, now we know scientific, as well as moral foundation. The foundation scientific, I said that we now know. Here's the deal with science. Science, which is really important and really good, is merely a consensus of what we have observed today. So when anytime new information comes, science says it can fully change its position. And that's where it's done when it comes to this fabricated and arbitrary line of personhood based upon viability. Okay, hang with me, but this is really important for our position in the world in which we find ourselves. Viability is the statement that a child can survive outside of the womb. And in 1973, during the decision of Roe v. Wade, viability was defined at 28 weeks. And maybe, just maybe, 24. Today, we found out that it's 21 days, and, or 21 weeks and six days. So somebody, there's a group of people in a back room who just decided that a 23-year-old kid was worth fighting for. And 30, you know, 30, 40 years, well, how many years has it been? 50 years. Since that decision that still defines the way we engage the world. 
You see, science is a consensus of our observations today, and it has changed, and now human scope has been broadened ever so slightly more because we learned and we realized we were wrong scientifically. This is why I think the arbitrary line of personhood based upon viability is faulty from the start. And the best framework for personhood when it comes to defining human beings in the midst of the mystery of what happens inside the womb is conception, not some arbitrary line that constantly changes as our scientific development increases. Now, there has been a growing hard-heartedness for those who consistently advocate for the rights of abortion, where more and more people are admitting, oh, yeah, that the, the, the thing that's inside that woman's womb is indeed a human person. We'll agree. This is more and more the argument. Yeah, what's going on inside that womb is a person. Let, we, you, don't, you can call it a fetus or not. We'll agree it's a person. But we believe that the woman who has the baby has the right to determine what human beings get to live or not. Human dignity is a charge to the people I think are important. Moving on. The lie of race. And by that, I mean the idea that people have inherently different value or worth because of the color of their skin or the texture of their hair or some other physical manifestation has been destroying this nation from its inception and continues to erode our culture. Even some Christian theologians would come to this text in Genesis and where it clearly makes no exceptions or nuance would say, oh, what the, the writers meant was that God said, let us make white people in our image. I kid you not. This was the theological framework to say that white people were made in God's image, but African Americans, they came about some other way. And this argument was used to justify and so bolster a whole economic engine in human trafficking and the African slave trade that is completely misses the authorial intent of what is happening here in the text. And it's still pervasive in our social structures today. Let me just paint you a quick picture. In the Constitution of the United States, African Americans are only considered three-fifths a person. For nearly 100 years, the first 100 years of this nation that set the trajectory and the structure of this nation, we perpetuated, bolstered, benefited from the whole slave trade of a whole people group exclusively because of the color of their skin. In 1883, after the Civil War was won and slavery was outlawed, the Supreme Court, still being awesome, the Supreme Court overturned the Civil Rights Act of 1875 as unconstitutional, which opened the door for Jim Crow laws across the southern states in segregation. Throughout the 20th century, there has been redlining, blockbusting, and racial covenants, which on your 
And many deeds still here in Kansas City says you cannot sell your property to a black person. Now it can no longer be legally upheld. But all of these structures were put in place throughout the mid-20th century to, to put up obstacles to keep African Americans from gaining economic wealth and leaving an economic legacy and one of the greatest economic boons of this nation's history. And the legacy of being kept back from those economic opportunities are still felt by the people that are surrounding us today. Because the opportunities you have often come from our grandparents and our parents. And if that was cut off at the knees for a whole generation, how does that continue to impact us today? And the list goes on. Human dignity is a charge to those we think are important. May God help us. <laughs> May God help us. Listen, the moment we begin to exclude God or twist his word is the moment we will exclude each other one way or another. Human dignity is God's idea. So what do we do? <laughs> what can we do if we want to see human dignity experience a great resurgence. What can we do? Here's what we can do. Be an ambassador for every human's dignity God's way. And that doesn't mean just seeing other human beings, every human being from conception to grave, no matter how different they may be from you, as someone worthy of respect and honor, that's the starting point. The next step is to stand alongside of them and stand for them. And I think Moses is actually a brilliant example of this. If you look across his story, Moses, who wrote down these words, inspired by the Spirit to uphold human dignity the world over. You notice what he doesn't do? In the midst of all the oppression and all the pain he experienced from the Egyptians, he doesn't say, God created humankind except for the Egyptians in his image. But Moses in the midst of unbelievable oppression, when his cousins and his brothers and sisters were experiencing infanticide in Egypt because they said, kill all the boys that were two and under. And his mom put him in a little ark, you know, a little boat in the river. And he was taken into Egyptian royalty. And he was raised in this household. And he figured out who he was, that he was an Israelite. And he became woke, right? And what did he do? He murders an Egyptian taskmaster. And then he finds himself in this precarious situation and he runs off to the countryside for decades, decades, until God pops back in and says, Moses, I need you. I've seen what you saw and it's detestable. And I'm gonna give you the words to speak. I'm gonna show you how to do it because you messed it up last time. So you're gonna have to follow me. You see, Moses doesn't go with his words and his anger and his ways. It's God who comes with the initiative and works through Moses. And what's so fascinating is that God still shows dignity to Egypt. How many times does he come and say, let my people go? Let my people go. Let my people go. But they would not. They hold fast to injustice. Moses spoke truth to power. And God worked powerfully through Moses. And when they experienced liberation, were they liberated from God's design and all of his rule and now we can do whatever we want? No, it was liberation from slavery. Now to reimagine, to re-understand, to return to the ways that we have initially been designed 
for flourishing. And God owns that template. And sometimes being an ambassador, that means marching and stepping out in faith. Sometimes that means going to the polls. Sometimes that means speaking up when everybody's being quiet. And sometimes it is the quiet, subversive living of every day. And often it's all of those, isn't it? Henri Nouwen, Henry Nouwen, I never know which right way to say it. Um, I'm sure somebody will say I'm wrong either way. So uh, he was a Catholic priest, professor, theologian, and writer of the 20th century. And I think his life is a brilliant example of this quiet, subversive living in the everyday. I mean, he was brilliant. He taught at Harvard Divinity School, Yale Divinity School, the University of Notre Dame, and he would travel around as a single man speaking in all of these different places and platforms. And then he decided to do something truly radical. At the peak of his intellectual career, he moved into La Arc Day Break community, which is a community where individuals with severe mental and developmental disabilities lived and were assisted. And he spent countless hours listening, loving, and being loved by the people that the rest of the world wished they could forget. And so all this while he kept talking, he kept going around and speaking at these different places while he's now investing his life in the ones that the rest of the world feels like are extra rather than important to God's work in the world. And he began to bring some of these members of the community with him while he would travel around and speak. One particular individual by the name of Bill became a deeply close friend of his who came with some mental disabilities and developmental disabilities, would crack jokes at the wrong time, would sometimes be extraordinarily difficult. But he brought Bill with him over and over again on these trips and eventually sparked a deep friendship with Bill, where he almost couldn't imagine going on trips without Bill. And in his book, In the Name of Jesus, which is a book broadly about pastoral ministry, but also about just the Christian life, he goes on to describe how in the midst of these relationships and in his relationship with Bill, he realized how this relationship with Bill had impacted so greatly, not, him, not only him as a person, but broadly the message he was bringing as a Christian. And this is what he writes in his book, In the Name of Jesus. In the past, I'd always given lectures, sermons, addresses, and speeches by myself. Often I'd wondered how much of what I had said would be remembered. Now it dawned on me that most likely much of what I said would not be long remembered, but that Bill and I doing it together would not easily be forgotten. The mission that Jesus calls us to often isn't down the path we assume. And he came to understand how, how big of a gift Bill was in his life. I mean, it sounds cliche, but he moved into this community to min minister to the folks who lived there, but he found out that it was so much more deeply mutual and how much more true it was to God's design that human dignity is God's gift to every human being. I want to be a place where God's design, the way he's designed us, the way he's created us, reigns supreme. I want us to be 
a church that understands that the way that God has designed us is the very reason he sent his son to die for us. And when he calls us to be an ambassador of the good news of Jesus Christ, we must also understand that that comes hand in hand with being an ambassador of the human dignity of every human person we walk alongside of, that we know of, that we speak of, that we talk to. So let's be a place, a church, where God's ideas reign supreme, where we don't distort God's word or we come to a passage and say, I don't think that applies to us anymore today in this cultural setting. Let's not be that church because the moment that starts to come, the moment we start creating God in our image rather than saying God has the power and the authority to make our identity, we lose everything. And hopefully, as we continue to lean into God's design that has been radically liberating throughout millennia, regardless of how unique we may feel like this century may be, maybe our city will look on and instead say something like, more human beings should be treated like that, God's way. And then in the midst of our passion for human dignity and our proclamation of the gospel, they'll see our triune God at the center and bring him praise. Can you imagine that? That's my prayer. Let's pray together. God, thanks for this morning. Thanks for your word. Thank you that when you chose to create us, you did something you didn't have to do. You created us with dignity that mirrors yours. So now we come submitting to you, longing to follow you. For if you would endow us with this much dignity and then you would send your son to die for us, why would we not trust that the path that you call us to guides us to greater dignity and joy, even if it may include suffering? God, may you give us faith to see each other, regardless of our differences, through the lens of your image. May you give us great capacity for self-sacrifice to lay down our lives for one another and to stand up for one another as ambassadors. All by the power of your spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.